So hey, good news, the next informational meeting is this Wednesday here. And so uh, we'd love to have um, a lot of people here to engage in that conversation and learn more about uh, the Mentoring Alliance, um, and uh, which is overtly a Christian group, and they are looking to find Christians who are willing to invest in the lives of uh, especially kids who don't have both parents and or come from tough situations or whatever. I know there's numerous people in our congregation who are already involved with the Mentoring Alliance or Gospel Village. Um, if, you're, if you're already involved with them, either you know, with them or, or teach with them or mentor with them or whatever, could you stand up real quick? I, th- I think we have a few maybe in here today. Yeah, so we have... So thank you guys for representing us already. And then... <clears throat> So hopefully on, we'll push them up over that 200 number. That'll be South Spring that will do that. So we need to engage in there and, and make sure we're doing that. Obviously, discipleship. This is a discipleship-driven church. We're not an event-driven church. We're not a program-driven church. We're not a staff-driven church. This is a discipleship-driven church. It is the root of all that we do, and uh, which is hard. And there's a lot of pressure to, to conform to another way of doing church. But that being said, that's why partnering with mentoring organizations um, in particular, Mentoring Alliance is a big part of who we ought to be. It's, it's a, expre- a good expression of our identity as a church. So, and then, so that'll be this Wednesday, so come for the meal at 5.30 and then, uh, and then afterwards. And, and also make sure in a minute when we're done with this service, um, we need to reset the room for that, which means all but, the back, all but the first six rows of chairs need to go away, and then we need to bring chairs out. And so it, if, if a bunch of people stay, it takes like 20 minutes um, if not many people stay, then it takes a long, long, long time. So um, please, those of you who need to get kids, go get kids. And everyone who doesn't, please stay and help us reset for Wednesday nights um, like that. So, um, and then the next Wednesday night after that is our, is our ministry huddle. This year, the beginning of the, the fall is always the Philippians 2. We talk about Philippians 2 and how it defines our culture as a church, that Philippians 2, 1 through 16. We may have some people who will be able to quote verses 1 through 16 for us um, that night. I'll talk a little bit about that, and specifically what we're going to be talking about and getting feedback um, a little bit on what we're going to be doing when we're done with the book of John, and so uh, because that, that is actually coming. And so um, in a few months, we will be finished up with the book of John, and I know what book I want to do next, but, but I want us to have some conversations about what we want to talk about from the pulpit in between. So feel free to come. That's in two Wednesday nights uh, to be a part of that as well. All right, so... Looking at these at the gospel accounts, these that we've been looking through, obviously through the book of John, we get here to the end of Jesus's life, and we're looking through some of these um, of these accounts. and And here's one of the things that I really want to help us with. Um, we will notice if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to notice that accounts and details aren't identical. This this can be troubling for some people if they don't have a very clear understanding on what the scripture is on what scripture is, what it means that, that, that things are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So each gospel writer, we believe, was inspired by God's Holy Spirit with what was written down and what wasn't written down, with what is said and what isn't said, and so that the original copies, of which we have none, would be flawless in that expression of the Holy Spirit's will for us, um, where that comes from. However, if you have, if you never thought about it, or you have this impression that it's not that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but that they're possessed by the Holy Spirit, like that they sit down at a desk with some candles, and then their eyes roll back in their head, and then their, their pen just kind of writes, 
And when they come up out of the trance, they read for the first time what it is that the Holy Spirit wrote through their hand. Yeah, that's wrong. Um, that's, not, that's not how that would have looked. What you have are the personalities, the memories, the, the um, ex- things that these men get excited about as they're writing, as what seems significant to them, their purposes, their agendas, and what they're writing. And that is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership that, that kind of transcends completely our understanding. Um, we, we don't understand the mechanics of that. Just like we don't understand the mechanics perfectly of prayer today. When we pray, going, how does it affect, how, when I pray now for somebody, how does that affect when it tells us that God knows before the beginning of time what's going to happen, and does that mean he knew I was going to pray, and that that's how that affects that? And so the mechanics of that gets really confusing really quickly. So there are times that we have to trust um, and, and go forward and go, you know, I'm going to pray and, and understand that God knows what's going on with this, even if I don't. There's a time for that. Well, that certainly is regards to this idea of, of the... Um, uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit when it comes to Scripture. We don't understand perfectly the mechanics. And on top of that, we have a Western bias when we read anything or do anything. For the, for the Western mindset, our mindset is that, that it should look a certain way because that's what we think is best. We are extremely arrogant. We're extremely uh, ethnocentric when it comes to this kind of stuff. I, I'm, I'm listen, when I say we, I'm including me. This is super hard for me to stop thinking this way. It is the natural tendency for me, for example, to think that photography is better than paintings for telling the truth. That is my instinct. Now, it's totally not accurate. I know because I see what you put on Facebook. And I know a lot of that is just not accurate at all. I don't buy it for a second. And so I know that's not true. I know that there's, there's no advantage of photography to not be fictional over something that's artwork. But, but when I first was, was it first explained to me that Scripture in many ways is probably best understood as art rather than photography, that began to help me. It's not that there's something non-historical about it. It's that it's the history being told through the lens of a purpose, of an essence that cannot be missed. Even if details are missed, that's okay. It is the essence that must not be lost. And so, for example, let me, let me show you, when I talk about that, so a photograph, as I say, a, lo- a photograph of a loving couple. Now, what's, the irony is, of course, I mean, it could be a stock photo. Like, that's good. They could be two, 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 you know, models who have never met each other. Like, now smile, click, click, click. Okay, now turn towards him, click, click. I have no idea what happened in that, right? But, okay, so let's assume. But even, even if that really is a loving couple, does that better capture the essence of what it means to be a loving couple than, say, a painting of a loving couple might? Does that capture the essence of what's being meant to be taught in both of those concepts? Does this capture it better? And in some ways, I think it does. That there's, there's, some, there's something that, that evokes to get a, a more complete picture. Or, or maybe a sad photo. So a sad photo, you could, do, you could show a sad photo of, you know, there's a sad person crying or whatever. But then is that, is that a preference over, say, a sketch, a sad sketch? Or could that even tell more of the story of what's going on? The sketch could give you actually a more complete picture of the sadness. Or a painting uh, uh, that's very similar to the picture, does that, does that capture the concept? Now, it's not that these are inaccurate in any way. They're being presented in a way that more completely captures it. And I have to show you the last one. So when I looked for a a happy painting, this was my favorite happy painting that came up, 
which I think is phenomenal. What a great way to capture the concept of happiness in a painting. But why I kept this is, more, is even funnier because happy photo, the words happy photo, this was the first option for happy photo. <laughs> so, oh, the irony, right? And I even love the brush he's got. I don't know what that's about. Like, that's a, did Bob Ross really paint with that kind of brush? I don't know. So, um, all right. So, but, but to get this idea, if, if we're not careful because we're so Western, we want this to be written as a textbook. It isn't. We want it to be written like a history book. It isn't. There is history here, very clearly. And different authors focus on different aspects of the history. And, but in order to understand what's going on, especially as we look at today's passage, I mean, this is, it is crazy how different Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about this event. Now, in this case, the differences, when you take them and you coordinate them, which I believe they're actually intended to be, they create the complete picture, and it's, it's really cool when we see it, but, but, but this is a, we're, we're going to have, I mean, John is barely going to mention Caiaphas. I don't know why that is. John is not concerned that much with Caiaphas, but Matthew, all of Matthew's conversation is about Jesus and Caiaphas in this situation. So as we, as we go through this in John 18, I want to prepare you for us bringing these concepts together, because we're going to be jumping back and forth um, more than we normally do. Each author has essential aspects of the different events that they don't want missed. They emphasize them to draw attention to them. Also with John, I think especially given John, John has written some, probably somewhat later than the other Gospels, and there may even be another Gospel or two that we have lost throughout history. Many people think that's the case. And John sometimes is citing Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and, and Luke cite Mark constantly. They had each other's Gospels, that when they looked at, John was looking at these, and I think part of things that John left out, it's because he already knows you know them because you've read Matthew. And so I certainly think that's the case as well. So we, we have this context. Mark leaves, has almost nothing about Jewish, the Jewish questioning, and Matthew focuses quite a bit on it. So we're going to look at this. So here we are in John 18, starting in verse 19, Jesus is before Annas. Annas um, is not technically the high priest at this time. Um, he was the high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the high priest. And, and before, when Jesus gets arrested, they don't take him to Caiaphas, which is what would have been appropriate and legally appropriate. They take him to Annas. And I've had taught to me that that's probably because we should think of Annas as the godfather. He's the real power broker in Jerusalem. He is the religious and political power broker under the Romans. And so, and so this is where, so they take him to Annas. Annas' son-in-law is the high priest, but Annas is the real power behind even the high priesthood. He is the, he is the, the mafia lord at this point in Jerusalem. And so Jesus gets brought before him. And I'm really intrigued by this. It's not a trial. It's kind of a grilling. But I'm, I'm a little, as I've dug through and tried to figure out what are, what are, what's Annas's, what are his motives here? What is going on here? And it seems odd to me. I have a, I have a theory now as to what I think is going on, but it's really impossible to know. I can't read his mind, certainly not from 2,000 years ago. So he starts asking, particularly Jesus, he starts asking him about, quote, his disciples and his teaching. And I think Jesus' answer is going to give us insight into what's going on here. He wants to know, who are your disciples? Who are they really? Who are your followers? What kind of people are they? What are their connections? 
Maybe he's trying to find out information about these guys who follow him around, these men and women who seem to go everywhere, who just a few days ago, thousands of them, hundreds, maybe thousands of them, surrounded him as he came into the city. I mean, Annas would have known all this. Nothing happens in, in Jerusalem without Annas' knowing about it. And so, and so here he is, he's going, what was really going on there? Who were all those people from Jericho following you? And, and why, when you went into the temple, were there a bunch of people with you all the time? And how did you hide from us? How did you, how did you vanish like you did a few times? Like, how does that stuff happen? And then about his teaching, and this, I think, in particular, here's what, Kai, here's what Annas, I think, is doing. He wants to know, what's the real story here? Annas is a man of conspiracies, so, of course, he assumes a conspiracy on everybody else's part, too. Liars assume you're telling them a lie. And so, he, what's the real story here? What's really going on? I, wanna, I want you to, I wanna, what is the teaching that you're doing when other people aren't around? What do you, when, you, when you're at the garden and you're in the dark, what are you teaching your men then? What's really your agenda? What's really your goal? And I think partially it may even be this. Now, this may be reaching, but supposition, I think maybe it's even this. I think maybe Annas is even saying, you clearly have a lot of power. You're kind of the man of the hour right now. Everybody's talking about you, and they have been the last few years. Everybody's talking about you all the time. I'm the real power in Jerusalem. What happens if we work together? I think this is an opportunity for Jesus to get out of the crucifixion. For Jesus to get out of the arrest, maybe. Maybe this is Satan's attempt to derail Jesus here through Annas to go, you know what, before you have to mess with all these Romans and all the legal mumbo-jumbo, maybe you and I can just deal with this here if you'll just play ball. I don't know that he said play ball, but that's, you know, whatever mafia terminology you're most comfortable with, right? Whatever, if you just want to play ball, then maybe, maybe we can avoid all this mess that's coming our way. And so he asks, what have you really been teaching? And so Jesus' answer is what makes me think this is what's going on. So Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the whole world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus' answer is, brother, there is no secret. What, what I taught in the temple is what I taught in the garden. What I taught in the synagogues is what I taught in the upper room. What I taught here in the plains of Jer around, around Jerusalem, man, that's what I was teaching on the shores of Galilee. I haven't changed my story. It's been the same from day one as it is now. There's no secret agenda. There's no deal to be made. Apparently, in an era when secret teachings were all the rage as they were at this time, many think that Gnosticism, the great secret knowledge religion, was coming into existence almost at exactly the same time as Christianity. Some people think it came from Christianity. I tend to be one of those who thinks it came in parallel and began to steal concepts from Christianity. This, but secret religions and secret cults and that kind of stuff, the Mithras cults and others, these were, these were super popular in this day and age. Annas wants to know, what's the secret teaching that's really going on? And Jesus is saying, I hate to break it to you, buddy. There's no secret teaching. I am who I say I am. That's what you get. And then he, he kind of pushes back. Why are you asking me? That's not what you do. You should be asking witnesses what I teach. You don't ask me. I'm the one on trial. Ask the witnesses. Well, Jesus is teaching. Look at Luke, what Luke 12 had taught. 
This is, this is a fundamental teaching for Christianity. Luke 12, nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing it is hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. This is a tenet of Jesus' teaching. It's amazing to me not how often the lies and the unfaithfulness and the infidelity is going on, but it's amazing how often it gets found out. It's shocking how often it gets found out. We're about to get a little story about that here in a second. But man, that's an amazing picture, that moment of realization. And by the way, if it isn't found out here, Jesus, I think, is teaching, it will be found out. There will come a day when there's an accounting for everything we've done, even the things we've whispered in secret. As I've talked about, the glory of God covers that, hides that even in some ways. But the truth is, everything will be revealed. <coughs> That's not Jesus' style. <coughs> Annas doesn't get him. But apparently the way Jesus says this, not sure if it's because he's giving instructions to Annas or trying to teach Annas how to do his job or whatever, but when he said these things, it says in verse 22, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand and said, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him and said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? I, I, I love the idea here. Jesus is the rational one. Notice how reasonable he's being. He's not losing his temper. He's being logical, scientific, legal. He's totally appropriate. Why did you hit me? Is, did, what I say, was I, did I say something wrong? Was I out of line? And if I wasn't, then why did you hit me? If I was, tell me what I did. What did I do wrong? What law did I break? What moral thing did I, did I mess up with? No, nothing? Then why hit me? The truth is, they're offended by Jesus. At the personal level, they have no legal stance against him. He just bugs them. He hurts their pride. They don't like that. Don't talk to me that way. He's totally justified in doing so, but don't talk to me that How dare you talk to the high priest that way? Now, I also will tell you, when I see this scene, it, when I read this, it, it takes me back to what I said last week when Jesus referenced the fact that he could call 12 legions of angels. That when, that when Peter draws a sword and Jesus is going, don't you, I mean, I could call 12 legions of angels. Which even if that number is meant to be specific, 60,000 angels, and there's that one in like 2 Kings that kills 165,000 Assyrians in one night. I mean, he calls 60,000 of those suckers. I have this image, I know I'm a child of the 80s and I grew up on Schwarzenegger movies and Stallone movies and Rambo. Like I grew up on that. And so forgive me, when I picture all of these angels in heaven and I picture all of them with all these different personalities during this whole thing going on, some of them are pacing and throwing their hands up and, and they're, they're, they're upset and they're like, let us go. Come on, we got to let us go down there. I mean, you can't let this kind of stuff. And then there's always the one scary one who's just sitting there quietly sharpening his sword. <laughs> like that's all, he, he's just silently sharpening his sword the whole time. Just waiting for the word. What does it mean? What happened in eternity? What happened in the invisible creation when this man struck Jesus Christ? You ever considered that? I mean, did angels in all of creation, no matter where they were in the universe, hear the resounding sound of this man unjustly striking the creator of the universe, the redeemer of mankind? And did all of their heads turn? Does this man have any idea how narrowly he avoided absolute destruction in that moment? If it wasn't for the authority of God the Father, no. Hold. 
That's what's going on. The significance of this moment is, is, is just beyond us. So Annas, apparently finding out, hey, Jesus isn't going to play ball, it says in verse 24, Annas then had him sent bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In John's book, that's it. That is, that is, the, that is all you're going to get about the, the uh, confrontation between Jesus and Caiaphas, is that sentence. So whatever Annas was seeking here, he didn't get. He sends him to his son-in-law now for a legal trial. Not truly legal. I don't know this, and I'm not an expert in this. I've heard that it's illegal that they're having it at night. I've heard that that's illegal, that that, that, that goes against Jewish law. Um, the way they're doing this in every aspect of it is illegal. I don't, I don't know that. I don't have the reference point for that. But whatever Annas was seeking, so he sends him to Caiaphas. Matthew, though, brings a lot of attention to this. Here's what Matthew, here's how Matthew describes this. Um, in Matthew 26, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. I mean, that's got to be frustrating. When you, I mean, there's literally guys in the back of the room saying, okay, you two come here. Here's what you're going to say when you get out there. Are we good? Good. And they go in and they can't get their stories right. Caiaphas has got to be going like, really? You... Please, would someone please, I mean, hours and hours of false witnesses coming in and they can't get their stories right. Man, you got to hate when, you're, when your agenda like this keeps falling apart, how frustrating that would have been. At last, I love John's words there, at last two came forward. That's all they've got to do is get two to agree. That's it. And they can't make it happen. At last two came forward and their stories finally agreed. They said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. <clears throat> that is not a crime. He doesn't even threaten to do it. He doesn't say, I'm going to. They don't even quote him correctly because he said, I'm going to. The actual thing Jesus said was, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it. Just this the temple is destroyed, I'll build it up in three days. He, he, he claims that this is going to happen. They don't even get that testimony right. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Not, again, not, not even, not a crime. But finally, two of them agree to something. And here's what's wild. It's pretty close to what he actually said. I mean, they got the gist of it, right? Here's what's going to happen. The high priest stood and said, have you no answer to make about what these men testify against you? Answer, nope. It says, Jesus remained silent. What would I say? Yeah. You just heard two witnesses agree. That should be done. Except there's no crime in this. So you can't find me guilty of anything, even through this statement. So here's what's wild. So then the high priest at the time says this. Listen to this. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. And here's what's wild. If he admits to being the Messiah, the Son of God, even that would not be a crime. You're allowed to think you're the Messiah. Lots of people had thought it. The Son of God is a reference that can even just mean one of the people of Israel. There's, but he's trying to get him to walk down a path and finally, and by the way, you got to love what interesting language to speak to Jesus Christ. Essentially, he's this, I adjure you by you to say this thing. If you are who you say you are, so I adjure you by the living God, meaning the one who I'm sitting here having a conversation with, if you are the Christ living God. And Jesus does not answer his question. 
Apparently, Jesus is tired of this. No one can get him to the cross. He had to send Judas. Judas, go now. He had to go move into a garden where everybody could come arrest him without there being a big riot or a big panic. He says the name I am, and all the soldiers fall down, and he has to wait for them to get back up. Then he has to hold back Peter and, and calm Peter down and heal Malchus. Then he has to allow himself to be bound to Annas and not make a deal with Annas. Now he has to be brought to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas, across apparently several hours, cannot get the boy convicted of a crime. So Jesus finally goes, I said, this is enough. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, <clears throat> you have said so. Again, but it wouldn't be a crime. But I tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me show you what Jesus is saying here. You got a Bible, you can turn over to Daniel chapter 7. This is an important prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the prophecy of the divine king. I saw in the night visions the prophecy Daniel speaking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the divine king, the one who is with God and who is God. The one who's going to rule over the entire race of mankind. That's how they understood this passage. And Jesus just said, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Essentially a quote of verse 13, Daniel 7. This is finally, if he's claiming about himself, this is blasphemy. It is either true or it is blasphemy. And Jesus is claiming it that this was written by Daniel about him. He's done it multiple times, by the way. This is the first time. Remember earlier in John, he used the statement, before Abraham was, I am. He's declared himself to be Almighty God multiple times. And here he does it here. And the high priest, <clears throat> the high priest tore his robes, which I've heard is also illegal in a, in a legal Jewish setting. But he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You, must, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? Think how relieved Caiaphas must be. He didn't sit silently. He finally committed blasphemy. Thank you, Jesus, for finally getting this over with. Finally, we can find you guilty of something. It's like Jesus has, he is scripting all of this and he's walking them through it. They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit on his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Aren't they so clever? Now, this is what's going on inside. John skips all of this. He knows you've got Matthew, I think. John skips all of this. John immediately jumps. So he's at Caiaphas' house now. John jumps back to Peter. Now, if Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, John's reiterating this. Hey, what's going on with Jesus? You know. Good news. Peter's comfortable. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it. He said, I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Which again helps you understand the confusion and darkness of the garden. 
that this man was there and his own relative had his ear cut off and he's not totally sure if Peter was the guy who did it. Wait a minute, aren't you the guy with the sword? Didn't you cut off my cousin's ear like about an hour and a half ago, two hours ago? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. And John, this is the end of Peter's story for quite a while. And John, Peter, Peter at this point goes silent. And you're not going to get, you guys wouldn't get to hear from Peter again until about Christmas. Because that's when we're going to get to that section. Luke gives us a little more information. By the way, the first service, apparently I said that. You're not going to get to hear about the end of that till Christmas. And apparently there was a kid over here that went, oh, <laughs> don't open till Christmas. Anyway, but Luke gives us more insight into what happens here. Had Peter been angry? Did he feel justified? Were his feelings hurt? He had drawn a sword and risked his life. He had thrown his life away for Jesus, and Jesus had called him down. And so I think Peter's feelings were hurt and he's, he's resentful, and he feels justified in denying this. He, hey, hey, he didn't, allow, he didn't back me in that. I'm not backing him anymore. Who knows what's going on in Peter's heart, why Peter reacted the way he did. But man, can you probably, can we all identify with this moment? Busted. That cold, frozen feeling in your gut when you realize, I've got to count the cost now. I should have thought about these consequences before right now. That would have been smart. Instead, I didn't think about this till right now. Here's what Luke tells us. And when this moment happened, Peter denies him and the rooster crows. Luke twenty two sixty one 61 says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Don't know how that worked out. Somehow Peter and Jesus make eye contact. And at that moment, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. This is a common experience for us as believers. That moment when we realize, I should have counted the cost before now. What have I done? God warned me about this. Jesus had warned him about this. Jesus had prayed that for, to give Satan the opportunity to say, don't sift him. I've prayed for your soul. And in this moment to realize, I've blown it. It's over. There's nothing left. It's all going to come out now. Who I am and what I've done. All of us as Christians experience those moments. We all experience those awful, horrifying feelings. Isn't it wild, not to give away the end of the story, but isn't it wild that Jesus chooses people like that who have experienced that? Man, I've always thought that one of the most chilling moments in human history is the moment when Nathan tells the little parable of the sheep to David. This cute little parable that's like it belongs on VeggieTales. Once there was a man with a sheep. It's such a cheesy little story that Nathan tells. And at the end of it, David is so angry and so self-justified that he says, that man should be killed for his abuse of that man, other man and his sheep. And Nathan says, you are that man. Whew. That's this. When Judas came to this moment, he committed suicide. An unnecessary overreaction to whatever Judas was feeling, and I have no idea what Judas was feeling. But Peter, Luke tells us in verse 62, that he went out and wept bitterly. Face before God, head in his hands, 
tears dripping from his elbows, weeping before God. What have I done? John doesn't give us that encouragement. John moves right on. Verse 28. Literally, you read, he went to Caiaphas. Peter denied him. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, still night, still dark. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled so they could eat the Passover. Don't you love that? Don't you just hate these guys? I hate these guys. Well, we wouldn't want to go into a Gentile's house because that would have us, then we would be defiled. Hold an illegal court for an innocent man, strike him, beat him, mock him, arrest him in the middle of the night. No, no, no. That stuff's fine. But we wouldn't want to be defiled when we go to Passover. What a fascinating level of hypocrisy. So the first thing I would say to this is God protect us from this type of religiosity. God protect us as individuals from thinking that somehow there's some kind of righteousness built in the, in the activities of religion. These men are going into Passover absolutely guilty before God. But at least they didn't go into a Gentile's house because that would be bad. The level of ridiculousness is meant to be drawn to our attention. I think John wants us to see the absurdity of this. They've broken one rule after another, but hey, they didn't go into a Gentile's house, so they're cool. The other thing that struck me about this is they literally have the Passover lamb, the actual one, chosen before the creation of time, the lamb without blemish or defect, as Peter says, chosen before the creation of time and revealed in these last days for our sake. They are standing with him, bound in their presence God forbid they miss the Passover. Brother, you're missing it right now. He is right there. You could not more dramatically miss Passover than they are missing Passover. They're, they're totally going to miss it. They have no idea what's going on here. That just that boggles my mind. And here's the thing. To protect us from the same thing, here's what struck me as I was thinking about this. How many times, let me give you something new to pray for your church staff for and the leadership and the lay leaders and everybody else. How many times are we tempted in the church to say things like this? Whew, man, Christmas is coming. A lot of work. How are we going to handle all this stuff? Lots of programming stuff. Or, man, made it through Easter. So glad to have Easter behind us. Wow, that would be a type of religiosity that misses the point. Don't let us do that. I remember years ago being stunned that on a, on a, on a psychological stress test that you fill out, what have you faced in the last year? That 30 points, if you got over 300, you were considered to be symptomatic, probably of anxiety. 30 points was Christmas. Most of us probably faced that in the last year. We all get 30 points of stress because there's this thing called Christmas that stresses us out. You talk about an exercise and missing the point. We are finally going to be free, so let's make sure and create as much stress as possible around this. I just boggle. Again, God protect us from the level of religiosity that thinks through some type of religious activity we're going to avoid being defiled in the midst of our sin and self-righteousness. Dang. So Pilate went outside and said to them, 
What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, by the way, this already sets the tone for the relationship between Pilate and the Jews. The Jewish leaders have called Pilate outside, and he's come. This tells you already there's a lot of power going on in relationship to Pilate. Many think, and we'll talk more about this probably, but many think Pilate was in trouble in Rome at this point, that the groups that he kind of ran with were not very popular in Rome right now, and that, that Pilate really could not politically afford an uprising or a problem in Jerusalem. And so he's trying to kind of pacify everybody. It would explain why he would have sent a cohort of soldiers out to arrest Jesus. Just, let's listen, let's play it safe. We don't want a rebellion. We don't want a, an uprising or a riot. Just go ahead and send out a whole bunch of soldiers. It's just easier to do it that way than to risk a handful of men starting a fight and then it grows and it builds. Let's just overwhelm it. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but why Pilate, the governor from Rome, would be woken up in the middle of the night and be willing to come out and meet with the Jewish leaders shows how much power they already have with him versus saying, man, have him call me in the morning. My next work, have him schedule an appointment. Why would I be messing with this? He didn't care about any of this. By the way, he hates these guys too. I mean, he hates these guys. All the Romans did. So he says, what accusation do you bring? And here's their answer. If this man weren't doing evil, we'd not have delivered, we would not have delivered him over to you. What type of non-answer is that? Hey, you know what? Trust us. Right. They just, they just reek of being trustworthy, don't they? Surely Pilate had enough information to know what was going on. He's about Roman law, not Jewish religion. He hates these guys. He doesn't want to mess with them, but he doesn't want a, a, a riot. He doesn't want them to cause a problem. So Pilate says to them, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. Why are you messing with me? Take you judging. But the Jews say to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That gets real, real fast. This isn't something, we don't want him just punished. We don't want him arrested. We want him dead. This is serious stuff. And you might go, oh man, now he's in for it. Now the Romans are involved. Now it's going to spin out of Jesus' hands. Now it's going to be a problem. Look at what verse 32 says. As if John knows that the temptation is to think, man, this is really getting out of control. Man, the Romans and the Jews really are taking charge of this. Man, Satan is having his day now, isn't he? In case you're tempted by that, John puts in verse 32. Listen, this was just to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All part of the plan. See, crucifixion was not Jewish punishment. They might stone people to death. They weren't even supposed to do that, although they do to Stephen in a very short amount of time. Now, John tells us that Jesus had used the term lifted up about his own death multiple times. And in Matthew 20, when Jesus explains to his disciples for the last time, he's not super subtle. Listen to, according to Jesus, here's the plan. See, if we're, go see we're going up to Jerusalem. Step one, the Son of Man himself will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. Two, they will condemn him to death. Three, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and then crucified. And then he'll be raised on the third day. Good. Check, son of man delivered to priests and scribes. Condemned to death, yes. Delivered over to the Gentiles, yes. Okay, we're up to mocked and flogged and crucified. That should be next. Jesus headed to Jerusalem knowing exactly what was going on. This was a script written before the creation of time. This was important to him. He needed to get arrested. He wanted to be arrested, convicted by the Jews, turned over to the Romans. It was a complex plan. Only he could pull it off. Jesus is pulling all of creation towards the cross. He is orchestrating the entire thing. Recall this and find comfort in it. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and to have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You don't have this verse up there, but verse 18 says, No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This is the charge I received from my father. This was the plan all along. Here's what this means. What this means is that when, when the triune God looked down through, the, through all of creation, looked down through the time of creation, while we were still just thoughts to him, while he had not yet put this creation into place, he said, there's some people down there that I want to rescue. I'm going to rescue them from their own foolishness and their own sin. And I want to rescue them from the just wrath. As Jared said a few weeks ago, the cup before them is my wrath. I need to get down there and switch cups with them. We know from John 17 that he was thinking about you and me in that situation, in that plan. And that he came, this is the gospel, God loves you, and Jesus came to rescue you. That's the good news. If that's never good news that you've accepted as applying to yourself, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day when you say, yep, that makes sense. I get it. God loves me. Jesus came to rescue me, to pay the price I couldn't pay, to drink the cup I couldn't drink, to make right the ransom that I could never have done, to balance scales I could never have even come close to. He took care of that. That's what we're seeing as Jesus orchestrates this whole thing, dragging creation to the cross. Why? Because that was the plan from day one. It was the charge that God the Father gave to God the Son because God the Father wanted human beings from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to be rescued and purchased for him, and Jesus was going to accomplish that on earth, and he's accomplishing it right in front of our eyes, one box checked after another, never not in charge, paying the price for us, for you and for me. I want to pray. Listen to what the Spirit leads. Father, thank you so much for the chance that as we continue to, to roll out your word and to be fascinated, I'm fascinated, Lord, by the reality of it. These people are behaving like real people. They're like people I know. They're like me. Lord, I, I thank you for the truth of that. And I thank you that in the midst of human history, Father, that you stepped in that your son, the divine king, the one who is with God and the one who was God, came near. And he got dirt and sweat and sickness and tiredness, exhaustion and blood all over him. That he received the blows and the spits and the everything else that he received and he did so as part of the plan to rescue us. Thank you, Father, that your son in his strength and in his glory humbled himself, taking on the form of man, being found in human likeness, humbled himself, emptied himself, lived life as a servant, and not just a servant, but a servant to death, and not just any death, but the death of a cross. And I pray, Lord, that that truth will drive us to our knees, that at his name, as our knees bow and our tongues confess that he is Lord, to your glory, I pray that our lives will be abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing with the gratitude of what you did, 
that would affect the way we engage with our spouses and the way we engage with our children and the way we engage with the world out there that we are overflowing with thanksgiving that we have the good shepherd and that you have laid down your life for the sheep. And we're so grateful, Lord. Have your spirit speak to us now. In your son's name we ask it, amen.